Happy 2022! I'm Alec, and this is Scandal 101. Hello, how are you doing? It is 2022. I'm recording this on January 1st because I will not be able to do it uh, in the upcoming days. But uh, sad news, Betty White passed away yesterday. So I guess when you're listening, it'll be about a week ago. But December 31st, she was 99. So close to 100, but I saw on Twitter that she lived through 17 leap years, so she basically made it to 100, and that's what I'm going to count on. I hope you had a happy new year, happy holiday season. I am super excited. I got a fancy microphone to record this podcast with, so I think it is going to sound better, and it's definitely making editing easier. And then also, I can hear myself talk, which is kind of cool. Um, But yeah, I feel super fancy official now that I have a legitimate microphone and not my computer microphone anymore, so that is exciting. For this episode, I'm not really going to talk about scandals I've seen in the news recently just because I've been spending time with family and haven't really been paying attention to the news, so no need to just kind of BS my way through that, but be... (laughs) And the other reason is because this episode, I am so excited to tell. I listened to a different podcast, I can't remember which one off the top of my head, that talked about this episode and it blew my mind. So I did my own research and I'm telling it in a little bit different of a way, just a way that I think that I want it to be told. And we're going to get into it. You've seen it from the title. This is The Boys on the Tracks. And before we dive in, this episode involves murder, scandal, conspiracy, government cover-up, maybe, who knows, it's, it's all here. So let's dive into it. My first source comes from season 5, episode 11 of a TV show, which I'm not going to tell you the title because it might ruin the ending of this episode, which I'll tell you later what the show is from, but it's from season 5, episode 11 of that TV show. To set the scene, it's dark, it's before dawn, and in Bryant, Arkansas. It's, uh, it's a little suburb outside of Little Rock, and according to the 2010 census, it had just under 17,000 people who lived there. And near that town, there's like a rail line that runs through there, and that night, a big 6,000-ton cargo train is on its way to Little Rock, and it's doing what it does. It's chugging along, you know, choo-choo the train, there it goes. It is traveling at a speed of 52 miles per hour, and the, the train with all the cargo that it's hauling, it's about one mile long. The engineer for the train, Stephen Schroyer, sees something ahead on the path of the tracks. It's the tr- where the train is going, but At that point, he's too far back to tell what it is. As the train barrels forward, Stephen sees something that would be impossible to forget. Two boys laying motionless across the tracks. The way they are laying is kind of like how in an old western movie, a bandit is tied on the tracks. They're laying like across, so 
head is toward one rail and then legs and feet are toward the under on the other rail so they're laying across the tracks. Steven said in this TV episode quote from the time we had placed the train into an emergency position and lay down on the horn I would estimate about three to five seconds to impact. That may not sound like a very long period of time but when you're bearing down on a couple of children it's an eternity honestly end quote. Stephen does all he can to stop the train, but it's, it's, first of all, it's a train. It's one mile long, and it's traveling at 52 miles per hour and weighs 6,000 tons. Despite his efforts, the train continues forward, and over 30 of the train cars pass where the boys were before the train comes to a stop. From an Arkansas Democrat Gazette, uh, Gazette article by Linda Satter, along with the engineer seeing the boys laying across the tracks, the engineer also said that the boys were partially covered by a green tarp. And then another thing the engineer said was that while the train was coming to a stop, the engineer was laying on the horn, but the boys didn't move, they didn't flinch, they didn't react at all. If you've been anywhere near a set of train tracks, you know how loud, even from a distance, a train horn is. So imagine being literally in front of the train. The horn is just blaring and the boys didn't move at all. Let's talk about the two boys. The two boys were 17-year-old Kevin Ives and 16-year-old Don Henry. And unfortunately, they died that night. August 23rd, 1987 is when this is all taking place. And they, their time of death was around 425, which is when the train ran over them. And for a while, the story was they died from the train running over them. But that story was only around for a little bit. An archived article from the Benton Courier describes the boys. Kevin was described as, quote, a water bug who loved to ski. His first time skiing was at the age of three, end quote. Don was described as, quote, someone who loved being outdoors, end quote. I think the first question we need to ask is why were the boys out there? Because the set of tracks, it kind of ran through a, through a wooded area. So why were the boys on the tracks? Or why were, they, why were they even in the woods, for that matter? What we do know for sure is this. The two boys, Kevin and Don, they left a group of friends around midnight that night and went back to Don's house. Don went inside and talked with his dad, and after talking to his dad, the two boys were going to go spotlighting, which is a form of hunting where a hunter shines a bright spotlight into an animal's eyes, and then they, like, freeze, and then it makes them easier to shoot because they're frozen in fear, I guess, of the light. And at the time, and I think probably still, that form of hunting is illegal. In some of the sources I read, it was like, oh, they were doing this illegal thing, which... Yes, maybe so, but that's not really, like, a key part of the story. They were gonna go hunting in a place that they had hunted before, along the railroad tracks, because, like I said earlier, it is kind of in this wooded area. And when they set out, it seemed to be a normal night. Until three hours later, when the train passed over the boys' bodies. After the first autopsy of the two boys, and yes, I said first autopsy, after the first autopsy of the two boys, it was determined that their deaths were accidental, of course attributed to the train running over them, and it said, quote, they died while in a deep marijuana-induced sleep on the railroad tracks, end quote. 
their parents could not believe this finding. Kevin's father said, quote, I couldn't believe that Kevin was knocked out on marijuana or into any kind of heavy drugs or anything like that because I was at home a lot during the day when Kevin came in from school and Linda was here at nights and we'd never seen him in a state that he even act like he was, you know, spaced out or however you want to phrase it, end quote. Basically, his dad said, I've never seen him on drugs. I've never seen him whacked out of his mind. So the fact that this autopsy is telling us that they were so high they passed out on railroad tracks? (laughs) I don't believe it. And remember from earlier, keep this in mind, the, according to the crew of the train, the two boys were partially covered by a green tarp. And then on top of that, Don's gun was laid down beside him on the tracks. And of course the gun was going to be for their spotlight hunting. After laying on the horn, Stephen, who is the engineer, said about this, quote, I started laying down on the diesel horn. I got no reaction, none at all, not so much as a flinch, and we just passed over him, end quote. The state medical examiner said that they had smoked the equivalent of 20 joints, 20 marijuana cigarettes, however you want to say it, and that them smoking that much is what caused their deep sleep. We heard what Kevin's father had to say about Kevin smoking weed and being passed out. Kevin's mother said about this quote, if they were that stoned, how did they lay down in identical positions? That was my immediate reaction to his ruling, end quote. So after this first medical examiner's ruling and the first autopsy, their death was ruled an accident, even though the parents had no knowledge of their child, Kevin, using drugs and the fact that they apparently smoked so much marijuana, they passed out across the tracks in identical positions. I'm not claiming to be a police detective, but from an outside perspective, that is very, very suspicious. And because it was so suspicious, Kevin's family, Don's family, they weren't going to accept this. So after the ruling, a prosecutor named Dan Harmon insisted on taking their case, which I'm sure was a huge relief for the parents. He grew close to the families, he supported the family's beliefs, and he said that he would find the killer of the two boys. The train horn was examined just to make sure that it was working properly, and it was ruled to be at a level of 98 decibels, which is the equivalent of a jackhammer and an air compressor running at the same time. You know how loud a train horn is, and if you, for some reason, can't imagine it, imagine a jackhammer and an air compressor running at the same time, and you're maybe 50 feet from it. That's extremely loud. I think even someone in a deep sleep would be jolted out of that with that crazy, crazy loud noise. On top of the fact that the boys did not move at all with the train horn being super loud, Don's father said that the gun that Don had was laying on the ground, which was not something that Don would have done because the gun itself had like some fancy wood finish on it and Don was very particular about it and did not want it to get scratched. So, Don's father is like, listen, I know my son, he never would have put that gun on the ground on the gravel to get it, like, it would be scratched and he would not have wanted that. So there are all these little things that the family are noticing about the way the bodies were found, the circumstances that the bodies were found where they're like, none of this is adding up. And because none of this was adding up, the families hired a private investigator. 
The family said that it seemed like as soon as the private investigator would be getting somewhere, there would be resistance from someone in authority, whether that be law enforcement, uh, prosecutor, there would be resistance from people in authority, which is kind of weird when you're investigating presumably an accidental death of two boys. After five months, there really wasn't any progress, so the parents held a press conference to bring attention to this whole thing. And then coincidentally, the next day, the investigation was reopened. A new prosecutor named Richard Garrett had the bodies exhumed for a second autopsy, and it was concluded that the boys had not smoked 20 joints, but between 1 and 3 joints, which definitely a much more reasonable amount. I, I can't imagine anyone smoking 20 joints in a period of even four hours because they left their house around midnight, their time of death was 425. Smoking 20 joints in four hours just seems, to me, seems ridiculously high. So the second autopsy was like, no, they maybe smoked between one and three. And the second autopsy also found that one of the boys was already dead before the train hit and the other one was unconscious. With these findings, they went to a grand jury and their deaths were changed from accidental to, quote, probable homicide, end quote. Another point of focus was that green tarp that the train crew supposedly saw. And I say supposedly because the police were like, what green tarp? The families said that the green tarp, it wasn't the boys, it wasn't the families. So if there was that green tarp, it wouldn't have come from the from the boys, so where did it come from? It was weird because the train crew was like, yep, there's this green tarp, but police who searched the scene denied that anyone on the train told them about a green tarp, and the the green tarp was never found. About the green tarp, Stephen, the train engineer, said, quote, they even questioned its existence. That, to me, would be like questioning the existence of the boys on the tracks. Because what's real is real, and what's not is not. End quote. So here you have just another weird point with these deaths that all, I think it was four people on the train said, yep, when we saw those boys on the tracks, they were partially covered with a green tarp. And when the police showed up, they supposedly never found a green tarp, and the police said, no one told us about a green tarp, we don't know where this is coming from. So how, how can there be all these inconsistencies with the story? You have the train conductors and the engineers saying there was a tarp. You have the police saying there wasn't a tarp. We didn't find a tarp. No one told us about a tarp. The families are like, our kids didn't do drugs. And even if they did, they weren't going to be smoking 20 cigarette, 20 marijuana cigarettes. The first autopsy was like, no, they definitely did smoke 20 marijuana cigarettes. The gun would, the parents are like, the gun would not have been placed on the ground, but yet the gun was placed on the ground. And if we're going with the fact that these boys are so stoned, how are two stoned people going to lay exactly the same way across railroad tracks? And why would they choose to lay on railroad tracks? It just doesn't make sense. Let's go back a week. A man was seen wearing military clothing and he was spotted near the train tracks. And police were driving by, um, paroling the area. Is that the right thing? Patrolling. (laughs) Paroling. Police were patrolling the area and they found that man suspicious. When police questioned the man, 
He responded by firing his gun at the police and then running off. The area was searched, but no one was ever found. The same night the boys died, there were reports of people seeing someone wearing the same clothing, military clothing, near the tracks. And that night, the the night the boys died, the man was seen less than 200 yards from where the boy's body would be found. To add another layer to this of mystery, in a town about 130 miles away in, I believe it's pronounced Hogden, Oklahoma, a similar situation took place in 1984. This case with Kevin and Don, this is in 1987, so the one in Oklahoma is in 1984. In Oklahoma, 1984, two younger men were laying across railroad tracks similar to Kevin and Don's, and they were run over by a train. And another thing... They didn't move at all when the train approached, similarly to Kevin and Don. There you go, there's some more confusing layers. A similar case three years ago, 130 miles away, and the military-dressed man. What's what's going on here? There's so much confusion and mystery. Let's look at one key person that kind of points to something interesting in this case. The first medical examiner. This information is coming from an article titled Don Henry and Kevin Ives, and of course all of my sources are on the website, which I will uh, say at the end. The first medical examiner's name was Dr. Malik, and he was the one that concluded that the two boys smoked 20 joints or 20 marijuana cigarettes. Eventually, when the second autopsy was done, the second doctor concluded that the boys were already dead, as established earlier, and then they also had smoked maybe between one and three joints. On top of almost completely contradicting the finds that Dr. Malik made, it was found that Dr. Malik did not follow proper procedures when doing the autopsy. Further, from other medical experts in the field, it was said that it would be highly unlikely, if not impossible, to pass out to the level that the boys would have had to been passed out from smoking pot. So the autopsy procedures weren't done correctly, the findings were whack, and medical experts were like, um, even if maybe you fell asleep after smoking a joint, you would wake up to a train horn. So, so Dr. Malik, what are you doing? Another thing that somehow got missed, coming from a different article by Noam Heller, further evidence showed that Kevin's face had been smashed in by the butt end of a rifle and Don had been stabbed in the back. It was also said by the train engineers that when the train hit the boys, their blood... Like, the blood that was coming from the bodies was kind of, like, thick, and I don't know, I, I thick is just a good way to describe it, and the train engineers, they had hit live animals, and they said when they hit live animals, the blood was pretty runny, it was red, it, you could tell it was, like, fresh, but with the boys' blood, it was thicker, almost like they had been dead before the train hit them. So with all of this evidence... It was enough to make some people start questioning things. It also made some people question Dr. Malik. To further show why people were questioning Dr. Malik, during the autopsy of Kevin, Dr. Malik had sawed Kevin's skull in ways that other medical examiners found shocking, almost as if to conceal something. The second doctor said, quote, I've performed thousands of autopsies and never have seen anything like it, end quote. 
When questioned about the findings that the boys were beaten, that they would have been dead before the train hit them, this is what Malik had to say. Quote, was there a stab? The answer is no. Were they dead beforehand? Absolutely not. They were alive. End quote. The inconsistencies between Dr. Malik and the fact that he was defending his findings and between the second autopsy, it brought a lot of attention to Dr. Malik, and in my, op- my opinion, rightfully so. With this newfound attention on Dr. Malik, a lot of his past rulings came up, and some of his rulings were a little strange, to say the least. For example, Dr. Malik made a ruling of suicide when the man had been shot in the chest five times. Another ruling was someone died of an ulcer when the man had been found decapitated. His kappa was detated from his head. (laughs) If you watch The Office, you'll get that reference. I am not claiming to be a medical expert of any kind, but I'm having a hard time believing that someone committed suicide by shooting themselves five times in the chest, and I'm having a hard time believing that someone died of an ulcer when they were literally without a head. With Dr. Malik's past weird rulings coming up and all these inconsistencies, people were, of course, calling him to be removed from his position because he wasn't only a medical examiner, he was the state medical examiner of Arkansas. Crazily enough, though, he wasn't terminated, but he was given a raise. Dr. Malik was given a $14,000 raise by who? By the governor of Arkansas at the time, Bill Clinton. This next part is going to make me sound like a crazy conspiracy theorist, but when I lay out all the evidence, it's kind of interesting. Clinton's chairman, Jocelyn Elders, said about the raise, quote, Based on the facts that I have, I really feel that Arkansas owes Dr. Malik a great debt and a real apology, end quote. Clinton said that he agreed with what Jocelyn said, and if there were any details missed by Dr. Malik, it was because Dr. Malik was, quote, overworked, tired, and underpaid, end quote. There, there's even more controversy than the fact that a prominent political figure who would then later on become president seemed to overlook some concerning evidence. From an LA Times article in 1992, three weeks before Clinton announced his presidential candidacy, Bill Clinton pushed for Malik to resign. But then, the, the very administration that pushed him to resign, the Clinton administration found Dr. Malik another well-paid job in the state government. These actions seem to unofficially confirm the connection between Dr. Malik and Bill Clinton's mother. Wait, what connection? We haven't talked about that. Well, Dr. Malik and Clinton's mother seem to have kind of a shady connection, in my opinion, and to the opinion of many other people. Dr. Malik made a ruling, like a medical examiner ruling, which helped Bill Clinton's mother to, quote, avoid legal scrutiny in one patient's death while she was defending herself in a medical malpractice lawsuit stemming from the death of another patient, end quote. So it kind of seems like Dr. Malik helped out Bill Clinton's mother, and Bill Clinton, in my opinion, seemed like he was kind of in Dr. Malik's death because it 
after that case, because of that ruling, Bill Clinton's mother did not get in trouble for whatever that suit was going to be. Despite this interesting connection, Bill Clinton, his presidential campaign, and other Clinton supporters denied the connection. Regardless of this denial, it's still interesting and it's still something that needs to be talked about because had it not been for that second autopsy, none of this would have been uncovered. And I'm not saying 100% that it's fact, but when you lay out the facts, the fact that Dr. Malik's past rulings were kind of shady in my opinion, the fact that he ruled someone committed suicide when they were shot five times in the chest, and the fact that Dr. Malik seemed to help out Bill Clinton's mother, it leaves a lot of paintbrushes for you to paint an interesting picture in your head. Moving on from the Bill Clinton interesting connection, remember our old friend our old friend Dan Harmon, the prosecutor who took on the case of the families and assured that he would find the killer? Well, I hope you didn't get warm fuzzy feelings with him because despite being a domestic abuser, those warm thoughts are going to shoot right out the window. So one thing about this story is there are a lot of prosecutors in the story, and Dan Harmon is one of them, but one we're going to talk about is named Gene Duffy, who was the former head of the Arkansas Drug Task Force. Gene was ready for her first day of work. She goes into the office. I'm sure she's setting up her things. Maybe she's like adjusting a desk plant. And as she's doing this, her boss comes in and tells her the following. Quote, you are not to use the drug task force to investigate any public official. End quote. What does Jean do? She hires undercover agents to figure out drug activity in the area, which, I mean, was part of her job, and she found out that there was a big drug smuggling ring that operated out of the Mina Airport, which was an airport a little bit outside of Little Rock. She learned that packages would be dropped from the planes right by where the boys were found, and those packages contained drugs. The undercover agents came back to her with the names of people involved, and one of the names should sound familiar. Dan Harmon. Dan Harmon was said to be a part of this drug smuggling ring, and once, Har- once Dan got wind of what she was doing, Dan's response was to start a media smear campaign against Jean, and since Dan Harmon was so well-respected, he was from the area, and he was going up against this newcomer, this out-of-state person, Dan was believed and Jean was thought to be ridiculous. Eventually, in some sources I read, due to fear, due to pressure, I saw some different things in different sources, Jean resigned and moved to Texas to get away from it all. If the fact that Dan Harmon is starting to look a little shady doesn't rub you the wrong way, how about this? People who knew stuff about the boys' death started dying. One witness to this all was Keith McCaskill. He said a few days before his murder that he knew too much about the murders of Kevin and Don and, quote, he felt his days were numbered, end quote. It was reported and said that Keith was murdered by his neighbor even though there doesn't seem to be much evidence to back that up. So this person named Keith McCaskill said he knew a lot about the deaths of Don and Keith, or Don and Kevin, excuse me, said, I feel like my days are numbered, and he ends up getting murdered. Okay, maybe that's just a coincidence, it's one person. Nope. A second person, who also coincidentally happens to be named Keith, but his name is Keith Coney, he was with them that night. And after the boy's death, 
he said that for a couple of months before he died, he felt like he was being watched. So two people who said they knew what was going on and knew what happened to Kevin and Don, both of those men got murdered. If this was a movie, I would think this is super unrealistic, but this is, like, all of this is confirmed. This is real-life stuff. So, of course, this case is growing, it's getting attention, so an out-of-state detective named John Brown is assigned to the case. On his first day of work, he is driven around all over the place by his boss, and his boss keeps telling him these random things about the case, and then it ends with, quote, John, you really need to leave this alone, end quote. So John is being told this by law enforcement in the area, being like, listen up, John, I know you're here to investigate this case, but you really need to leave it alone. So what does John do? He starts looking into the evidence, and he discovers that a lot of key pieces are missing, such as the fact that there are no crime scene photos, there are no sketches of the scene, and there are no lists of evidence. Despite this, he was able to gather some things, and he went and got testimony from someone named Charlene Wilson who claimed to be there that night. After John started talking to, or after John talked to Charlene, Dan Harmon, our good old friend the prosecutor, started threatening people. Somehow, and I guess you could say luckily, there is another eyewitness, and it's fortunate that he's not murdered because two other supposed eyewitnesses were literally murdered. A boy at the time named Don Niehaus claimed to be in the woods that night and said that Dan Harmon was there. Well, how could Tom know who Dan Harmon was? Tom knew Dan Harmon because Dan was dating his mother. So there was no way that Tom would have been mistaken about who Dan was. Tom said that he noticed the two boys, Kevin and Don, being called over by Dan, who was with a group of people. Tom said that the next thing he heard was something that sounded like a gunshot. After that, he was terrified and ran. Charlene Wilson that John talked to, she had a lot to say. From a Sword and Scale article, she said in a confession later, in a confession letter that she was there that night on the tracks. Not only was she there, but she was there with Dan Harmon, our friend the prosecutor, and then there were others there. The groups were there for a, you guessed it, a drug drop. Because remember earlier how we talked about there was a drug smuggling ring that operated out of the Mina airport? Well, apparently, our good friend Dan Harmon and law enforcement in the town were involved in this drug smuggling ring. According to some, the boys, Kevin and Don, they had heard about the drug drops and wanted to see. Others, other reports I saw said that they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But regardless, in a confession letter that was written by Charlene, the boys were apparently beaten up by men who in the group apparently included Dan Harmon. So the boys were beaten up by men in that group before Charlene gave one of the men a knife. Don was stabbed and Kevin had been knocked out. Going back to the Fresh Edits article, that wasn't the end of the story. After Tom had run away, it was reported that somehow Kevin and Don had managed to run away to a nearby grocery store where they met, guess who? Keith Coney, their friend who eventually got murdered. Keith apparently saw the boys, was kind of scared, and drove off when two police officers showed up, beat Kevin and Don unconscious. They were then thrown into the back of the police car, covered with a tarp, a green tarp, and taken back to the tracks, where then on the tracks they were covered with a green tarp. Let me say that again. 
This drug smuggling ring apparently included Dan Harmon, the prosecutor, law enforcement, and law enforcement were, apparently, according to Charlene, who was there that night, responsible for the boys' death. Even though Charlene had written this letter, the letter wasn't seen by Kevin or Don's family until 2015, almost 30 years after the death of the boys. Kevin's mom, named Linda, she took the letter to the prosecutor at the time, who brushed her off and told her to take it to the police. So she went to the sheriff. But guess who was the sheriff? Dan Harmon's nephew, Rodney Wright. From the article written by Linda Sater, Kevin Ives' mother, Linda, she never gave up fighting. She submitted endless Freedom of Information Act requests to get information from the DEA regarding information about the drug drops. Because this, those drug drops apparently all revolved around one man, Barry Seal. Barry Seal was a pilot who flew, out, uh, who flew in and out of the MENA airport and, quote, testified in 1985 that he had smuggled tons of cocaine from Columbia to drop zones in the Louisiana swamps. The man was suspected of being an informant for the DEA and was killed in an execution-style shooting in 1986, end quote. So basically, what that quote is saying is that Kevin's mom's theory was that whatever Barry was involved in was what her son and Don saw. Even though Barry had been murdered the night like way before the night the two boys had died, the drug trafficking didn't stop. She thought that the documents should be revealed because if there was a connection to the routes that Barry used to fly, and if it was true that Barry was working for the DEA, she was thinking that the government could have been responsible, or the government would have been responsible for illegal drug trafficking and potentially the death of the boys. Unfortunately, in June of 2021 this past year, Linda Ives, the mother of Kevin, passed away at the age of 71, never knowing what happened to her son Kevin or to Don. She never gave up. She fought until her last day. She posted videos on YouTube. There were some posted, I think I saw as recently as 2019. To date, no one has been held accountable for the murders of Kevin or Don. Dan Harmon, who is a prosecutor, was eventually arrested for drug charges, but even though Kevin and Don's deaths are ruled as homicides, no one has been charged, no one has been convicted. To end this episode, a quote from an investigator who was helping Linda, Kevin's mother, quote, the only person who knows the truth now is Linda Ives. She had the chance to meet her son in the last 48 hours, and he has told her the truth, whatever it is, end quote. And that concludes the wild story of the boys on the tracks. This has definitely been my favorite episode to do. I cannot believe everything that I researched, and there are so many rabbit holes to go down. There's a couple that I didn't even explore, but when you search this case, these are kind of the main tunnels to dive down, the conspiracy theory that involves the Clinton family, the Clinton administration of Arkansas at the time. And just to be perfectly clear, I am not in any way saying that Bill Clinton or anyone that I named is 100% responsible or saying that they are responsible at all. I am just telling you what has been reported. I'm saying that in my opinion, the facts are a little suspicious 
Alrighty, to do a personal scandal quick, um, I asked people just for like their personal scandals and a couple people wrote in. All right, here's this one. The candidate for mayor who was a Republican who lost and was a former substitute teacher who was on the town board and he was a manager at the local grocery store was arrested by the FBI for a sex scandal involving an underage boy he taught when he was a teacher at a school. Yikes. So basically, it sounds like you have this person who's keeping up appearances. Oh, he's a prominent politician. He's a business owner. He's a teacher. But he's also a pedophile. Disgusting. And also just to be clear, in no way am I saying that Republicans are pedophiles. That was just what was written in the email. And it's also just a fact. If you're a Republican, a Democrat, whatever. If you're a pedophile, you're a pedophile. You're gross, no matter what political party you are. Okay, on that note, (laughs) that concludes the boys on the tracks and the personal scandal. Thank you so much for listening. I'm going to be posting photos on social media, on Instagram at Scandal101Podcast, on Twitter at Scandal101Pod, on Facebook, Scandal101Podcast. Our website with the show notes is scandal101podcast.podbean.com and an email where you can send your personal scandal is scandal101podcast at gmail.com. Again, thank you so much for listening. This was a little bit longer of an episode, but I really hope you enjoyed it. I definitely enjoyed researching it and telling you the story. I will not see you next week because that's not a thing. There will be a new episode out next Friday. Stay safe with the new variant of COVID spreading around. My school is going online for a little bit, which is a bummer, but if that's what keeps people safe, that is what needs to be done. And then before I forget, I forgot to say what the TV show was. It's Unsolved Mysteries. That was the TV show that I watched. It's on YouTube and it's in the show notes. So yes, good stuff. Stay safe, have a good day, night, morning, whenever you're listening, and this has been episode 34 of Scandal 101.